You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. <laughs> Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the Holy Founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the Holy Founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none, is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Ahmadiyya Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars being fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, it is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, 
They were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen. And I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyan community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community. And that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. You're listening to Voice of Islam, online, on mobile, and on DAB. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, welcome. Good afternoon, assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Friday, Drive Time Show with myself, Kayum. And today we're going to be talking about, as always, important topics which are more relevant to today, and we're going to uh, try and uh, decipher them from the Islamic lens. Today, for the next hour or so, we're going to be focusing on world leaders. I think very relevant today. Um, it's not just world leaders, but we're going to be looking at political heads of states um, and uh, how they are performing. And in line with our topic, we are asking a question on our Instagram story, which political world leaders are just? And I think that's such a relevant question because what's the point of being a, a leader if uh, you don't practice justice. So today we're going to be setting our sights on a universal and incredibly relevant theme, which is leadership. We talk about leaders um, in today's day and age with the conflicts that are happening around the world. We have a lot of leaders on paper, um, but the question that does arise is uh, there's, a, there's a severe lack um, of leadership. One of the reasons why I played that little clip uh, before I welcomed everyone was to give an example of what leadership is and um, what uh, what are the focal points of what a leader needs to be practicing 
um, in the role that they have been chosen uh, to to perform. And that's what's going to be the topic of conversation. We're going to be focusing on justice. We're going to be focusing on uh, on, on human rights. I think today, um, humanity and to serving humanity is key part of uh, um, of what a leader needs to do. And I think a leader needs to identify when a wrong is being done um, and to commend when something right is being done and, in fact, to take part in something when something right is being done. We've got some fantastic guests with us today who are going to be shed some, we're going to shed some light um, on the question at hand. So before I go on and on, uh, let's go and talk to our first guest who will be able to put some more substance on the topic. We've got with us uh, Yasmin Ahmed, who is um, director, UK director of Human Rights Watch. Um, good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you. And thank you for taking time out for the Drive Time Show today, Yasmin. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me. Um, Yasmin, I mean, as I said on on the intro, one of the one of the biggest problems uh, we have today is we have got a lot of leaders, yet there is a, a severe absence of leadership, and, and part and parcel of leadership is justice and and humanity. Um, can you give us a brief introduction to from a humanity point of view, from a human human rights watch perspective, what your main aims? are and how do you achieve them uh yeah well i mean our our main aims is to try and um ensure that all governments around the world comply with their international legal obligations whether those obligations are human rights obligations or obligations in the context of war international humanitarian law um, or other obligations that they have made including towards refugees and other people so our main aim is to push governments uh, to, to support uh, civil society on the ground uh, and to use multilateral and other forums to ensure that states are complying with their obligations towards individuals in their countries um, and that states are pushing other states when they're not doing to be be doing so. And I think, um, as you have noted, there's been an, a marked failure on behalf of the international community, which is only uh, only more than evident uh, right now. Now, you 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 mention the failure of international community. Um, you know, basically talking the talk. There's a lot of lip service, but there seems to be a lot of action which is which is missing. So, what strategies do you believe are most effective in um, in deterring human rights abuses and ensuring accountability in context of? Uh, the Palestinian situation, which is which is in fr- which is in front of us for the for the past few weeks, uh, without compromising diplomatic relations or escalating tensions, um, or or is it inevitable that diplomatic relations or or, or tensions will increase? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, in the context of of, um, the current hostilities, is to um, firstly be very clear that international human rights law and international humanitarian law, um, in particular, applies to all parties to any conflict. And that applies equally to Hamas as it does to Israel. Mm -hmm. But what we also need to say is that it's very, very important, speaking about this situation, that we do it with an understanding of the context. And that context 
is over half a century of violent occupation by Israel of the Palestinian people in the form of dispossession of their land, suppression of their most fundamental civil and political rights. Um, and we only have to see the fact that Gaza, this is now, the siege has now been nearly three weeks, but it's been 16 years of these, uh, of people in Gaza being blockaded. In terms of what the international community could do um, in this context. I mean, we've seen a failure in this regard. We saw that the Security Council was blocked because there are certain powers, including the United States in particular, uh, that blocked a, a resolution that would go through around this situation. We've seen this, the General Assembly, which doesn't have the same powers, but mobilising. And obviously, we've also seen the International Criminal Court, which has an open investigation in relation to matters in the occupied Palestinian territories. And the current uh, prosecutor has noted that he will be investigating what is happening in the current context. So I think, I mean, it's very clear that Israel is committing the crime, is committing, well, and continues to commit crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution, as well as um, they have, you know, committing war crimes such as collective punishment. And obviously, as Human Rights Watch as well, we have denied and made very clear that Hamas's attack on civilians are crimes and should also equally be investigated. Now, Yasmin, such fantastic, relevant points. My only issue, not with what you're saying, is that all the facts on the ground, the reality on the ground, is treated by mainstream media and the political class as whataboutry. Okay, so it happened. So they don't want to talk about the past. They only, they seem to think everything and all the abuse um, started on the 7th of October. So how does one challenge that? How does one go back to them and say, well, hold on. It was all calm before the 7th um, for 25 odd years. And suddenly the calm is broken because of what happened on 7th October. How do you how do you tackle that from someone in your position who who sees things who um, as reality, not just media looking at pictures, but you are at the front end. How do you cope and deal with um, people ignoring reality. I think the first, for, for my perspective and from Human Rights Watch's perspective, the, the most critical point that we need to make in any context is to say that every, no one is above the law. Nobody is above the law. Mm. And the uh, law applies equally to all parties to the conflict and applies equally to all countries. And why that is important is because if states want to use international law to denounce some, including Russia, then that denunciation and that power of international law to be able to do its work, to hold to account people who are not complying with that, only has validity when you are applying in all contexts. So I think it's very important to say that um, international law um, first of all, needs to be, uh, uh, you know, be uh, uh, complied with by all. In terms of your question, I think that we have been very clear at Human Rights Watch, and I think, you know, our work on uh, our work, and when we found that um, uh, Israel is com com committing the crime of, uh, of against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Um, was work which was reflecting work that had been done or was uh, had had echoed work that had been done by Israeli and Palestinian organizations on the ground and I do think that work has been critical in shifting the narrative hmm. I have seen in this current context 
very different from other contexts, other times where we have seen hostilities rise, where there has been a discussion, including by the UN and others, as we saw the Secretary General of the UN talking about the broader context. That has never happened before. I think that the dial has moved in terms of people, states, national bodies acknowledging that their, the human rights of Palestinians have been all but suffocated hmm. um, and that these ongoing violations need to be remedied. None of that, none of that justifies the acts of Hamas against Israeli civilians. But it is incredibly important, particularly in the context of when we are looking forward about what happens next? How do we get to a point of, of addressing the root causes of any given conflict and move towards peace, which everybody really should want? And I know many Jewish and Israeli people want, as well as Palestinians. One cannot achieve that until one addresses the fundamental human rights issues which exist within the context of Israel and Palestine today. Is there a desire for that or Palestine doesn't matter? I think, to be honest, that it, I think that there, we are seeing the global majority countries. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a shift more generally, I should say, in power, I think, between the North and the South. Um, in that we're seeing more and more countries speaking up. We saw it in the General Assembly. Um, we're obviously seeing uh, Arab neighbours um, raising significant concerns. But but my, I think one of the things that's very important to note is that the power of people, I think, is incredibly important. The fact that I think a lot of the uh, Arab nations, and certainly in the UK we've seen it happen as well, is that political leaders are concerned about their own legitimacy when people within their own country are raising issues about this and are speaking about justice, accountability and human rights. And so I think people, for me, the fact that people, every citizens continue to raise this issue of call for accountability and the application of international law equally in all contexts and calling, I think, is really powerful and I think is one of the most important things as we move forward. Now, you, you mentioned people and in, in, in my lifetime, I have never seen um, so much effect of how international um, this this movement of for the for the rights of Palestinians um, is is actually making a difference. Like as you so rightly say, people's voice matters. Mm. How can civil society and grassroots movement and work together together? Because there seem to be a lot of mm. a lot mm. of things happening, but there's no cohesiveness. There's no joint. Um, mm. There's no joint ventures, and and I think. Mm. You know, if the, everybody was on the same page at the same time, it the the, the hard work that they're putting into um, fighting for 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 justice would have a greater effect. How do you think that can be done? Well, I I think it's really important um, to note that even though maybe we're not and the human rights community and then even civil society more generally is not necessarily completely coordinated. I would say that it's incredible to see, and I've spoken to MPs from all political parties 
who are feeling significant pressure because their inboxes are literally overflowing with uh, emails, with messages from people who are calling for human rights and accountability and justice. And these people know very well in the UK in particular that they are reliant on their constituents' votes. So I, I would say that what I am observing, certainly from my discussions with MPs um, and from you know all parties, but you know we've got parties that potentially want to get into power, that they hear this very loud and clear, and their MPs do. And so I would say I would just really urge people if they want their voice to be heard to continue sending your MPs, lobbying your MPs, making your voice heard because. You, they rely on you to be where they are, and it will be very important. I, I think it's very important as a, 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 you know, as as constituents that we remember that also that this issue is one that's not only about these current hostilities. We should be holding our political parties to account for their position on Israel Palestine and other issues in the longer term. We should be asking them in our emails and in our work, what is your position going forward on Israel and Palestine? I want to hear very clearly, what is your position on uh, the systemic discrimination that is happening against the Palestinian people? What is your position on the UK's support for the International Criminal Court, which our current government is trying to push away? Mm. What is your support for the ICJ case? that's currently going on. I think we want to be, you know, I think civic activism at this moment is more critical than ever. But let's remember that it shouldn't be limited to this moment. Right now, obviously, the critical point is to make sure that there is some form of justice, accountability and compliance with international law because of the devastation that we're seeing right now. But let's be strategic and thinking about what we want our political parties and leaders to be saying in the longer term, let's make it clear that our our support may well be dependent on what we see them saying on this in the longer term. Finally, Yasmin, I know you have to go. One question that comes to mind today on the way here, I was listening to the news on Remembrance Day is coming up and there's this huge hoo-ha politically that protests and the demonstrations mm. need to stay away from um, Remembrance Day um um, days, I would have thought yeah. it would be the best time to demonstrate, to show that, look, we are remembering the people who gave the sacrifices and life for for justice, yet mm. we are trying, on, on the same hand, we are trying to stop other people who are demonstrating, not for a political cause, but for humanity and justice. What would be your take on that? What would be your message to to decision makers to say, look, th- this is actually a perfect opportunity to highlight the injustices that are happening in the world? I mean, it is utterly deplorable attempt by the British government and Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak to, just, to suggest that compassion for the plight of Palestinians is somehow at odds with remembering the sacrifices of British service personnel. It is cynical a cultural war politics and an attack on our democratic freedoms. And it is certainly consistent with their playbook. But as you said, there is absolutely nothing inconsistent. And in fact, it's wholly consistent to be calling for and having our voices heard with respect to the compassion uh, for the plight of Palestinians, whilst always also 
as a community remembering the sacrifice of British per- service personnel. And I think it's nothing more than, um, you know, very, very cynical politics. Finally, Yasmin, what can I do as a layman? Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are sitting in, in parts of the world who are feeling the plight. They are, they're feeling the, the suffering, um, yet they feel more frustrated because they don't know what to do. As, as a person, as a director of Human Rights Watch, what would you, what, what's the advice you would give to maybe volunteers who come and work in your organization to say, look, this is what you can do? I think the first thing to say is it is a really heavy time for so many people across the world. I mean, first and foremost for those people in Gaza and obviously also those that are affected in Israel as well. Um, I think it's a moment that really is testing not only humanity and not only international law, but it's testing all of our hearts. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I feel, you know, extremely heavy at the moment as well in relation to this. I think this is a moment to realise, and I, I really believe this, this is where civic activism really needs to come to the fore. Um, there are some places more where we have the ability to do that, some places where, you know, where the, the, the civic space has been closed to such an extent where you can't do that. I mean, we're seeing the, the question of protests in Egypt, for example, which are consistent with how the Egyptian government has dealt with, mm. um, you know, protests consistently. But I would say to people, don't, don't allow this current government to, um, to, 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 to which where they are willfully trying to suppress your right to protest, freedom of expression. Obviously, there are laws and boundaries that everyone has to stay within. But don't have them, what they're attempting to do is try and chill us so that we won't, as a collective civil society, get out there and have our voice heard and challenge them. And it's certainly consistent with what this government has done. I mean, they've tried to, they've passed numerous laws to, limit the right to protest but i think in addition to protesting in addition to having your voice heard really i would say civic activism with your government with your mp make sure your voice is being heard your emails have to be read your messages have to be heard so continue to do that and then obviously there will be organizations that are working for palestinians on the ground who are desperately need support help whatever else it is. And there are many ways of, you know, finding out who they are. So I think there are a number of ways that in a time where we all feel desperately, desperately disempowered to remember that your voice matters and your, uh, and to make sure that uh, your voice counts. Wonderful. Yasmin Ahmed, thank you so much for taking time out for us on the Drive Time Show. Uh, may Allah reward all the hard work you do um, for covering and, and to, and to, you know, make people aware um, of uh, of the wrongs that are happening. Um, and may Allah bless your work. Thank you for your time. Have a fantastic evening. Sure. Peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you. And that was Yasmin Ahmed, who um, is the director, UK director of Human Rights Watch. And it's so important. I think the last point that Yasmin raised about uh, writing emails and letters and and being on social media, uh, you know, to raise your voice, allow, allow, you know, let your local MP, your local councillors, let them know how you're feeling about the injustices that are being carried out in your name. Effectively, you are the voter. So your 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 MP, your um, be it your local councillor or be it your member of parliament, they are there to raise your voice. They are there because you have put them there, and it's so important that um, 
you you write to them in whatever format that works for you social media is something that um is uh, is is doing a fantastic job in in respect of raising the awareness of what is happening um what is what is happening in uh, in in Palestine um let's go and uh, talk to our next guest uh, we've got with us uh, dr dalal um irikat dr dalal irikat is the assistant professor at the arab american university palestine um irikat was identified as a young global uh, world economic forum 2021 dalal's research focuses on diplomacy nation branding palestinian state building uh, coercive diplomacy public diplomacy soft power mediation and conflict good afternoon assalamu alaikum peace be on you thank you for taking time out uh, for the drive time show dr ericat thank you um considering the dire circumstances on the ground what strategies or initiatives would you recommend to ensure a sustainable ceasefire and prevent further civilian casualties and infrastructure damage in gaza and and a small caveat with this question would be we we are talking about a sustainable ceasefire what's the chances of actually getting that well thank you very much um my first message um through you and to all your audiences i'm hearing us from the uk is that in the name of humanity everybody should be calling now for immediate ceasefire it is day 28 and we are all witnessing documented war crimes that israel is perpetrating against palestinian civilians the majority of whom are children and women just now the al shifa hospital entrance was shelled and we have uh, more than 60 um uh, casualties until now and the death toll is rising until today the past 4 weeks we have had more than 9000 palestinian civil- civilians that and the israeli war crimes continue while enjoying impunity so this is that my first message and then in the humanity every human being is supposed to be calling for an immediate ceasefire in the name of the, the atrocities that we are witnessing no human being should remain silent and no human being should be putting any priority in front of ceasefire against all those uh, civilians suffering from the documented war crimes that Israel is perpetrating my number two message is diplomacy as a professor of diplomacy international law international humanitarian law for Geneva conventions the rome statute even the laws of war everything is very bluntly clear when it comes to the occupation power responsibilities uh, to the protection of the civilians and you know holding the criminals accountable so the international uh, member states and the uh, contracted states to the Geneva convention have an ethical and legal obligation to search for the criminals and to hold them accountable but above all to protect the civilians diplomacy is not about soft power diplomacy sorry it's not about soft language it's about soft power it's about time they abandon the statements and the nice rhetorics and discourse and they start implementing and acting upon their words it's time to walk the talk of the 1000 resolutions that the palestinians have to, to, in order to protect our rights whether it is for land or civilians or right to self determination what we are basically witnessing now is a translation of the balfour declaration and he put the responsibility on the uk and it's interesting that your audience will now realize it's year 106 after the balfour declaration that read uh, transformation of the palestinian people the owners of the land into minorities who should only enjoy religious rights dr dr erkat i'm so sorry to interject you you mentioned and you talked the reason i interjected you talked about the the, the, the listener 
it's so good to see here that you say 106 years. The problem we seem to have from mainstream media is they seem to think this started on the 7th of October. How does one deal with that? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Israelis are the masters of spinning realities. They have mastered the art of uh, distorting the audiences and misleading the masses. Uh, they invest uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in their strategic communication tools in misleading the audiences. So yes, they are trying to convince everybody around the world that this has started on October 7th and that this is an Israeli Hamas war. On the contrary, we, the world should know, and it doesn't really take a genius to realize that the Palestinian people have been suffering under an Israeli military prolonged occupation for 75 years that started with the establishment of the Israeli state on the Palestinian soil after the Nakba, hmm. where the Palestinian people were forcibly displaced and evicted and became refugees for the first time. And now in Gaza, we are witnessing again another attempt of a second Nakba. The Palestinians have learned their lessons very well from the first Nakba. They will remain resilient and they won't uh, just get evacuated and we will uh, safeguard our right to self-determination. I want to go back to the Balfour Declaration 1917 because it was the basis of steps that facilitated the way to the establishment of that state before the Nakba took place. And it did facilitate the immigration of the Jewish people from Europe and all around the world to uh, the land of Palestine. The deal of the century is in practical translation on our ground. It is translated at uh, the expense of the Palestinian blood. We have seen the military eviction orders by Israel against the 2.2 million civilians in Gaza. Yet, the, the conspiracy is, is very clear, and the Palestinian people's uh, right to self-determination is also very well embedded in the name of diplomacy, UN resolutions, international law, international humanitarian law. All we are asking the leaders of the world that it is not time to take sides. It is not time to say that if you are pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. My message through you to all your audiences in the UK is to stand for humanity. As we are speaking, Thousands of Palestinian children are under the rubble. Women are suffering. 50,000 Palestinian women are pregnant. 5,000 of them are going to give birth in the next month. Those are basically deprived from any medicine, supplements, hygiene, doctors, uh, ecosystem, no electricity, no fuel, no hospitals operating uh, normally. They are deprived basically from the human needs that any person is enjoying around the world. It is not okay that we are watching and we are silent or just uh, satisfied with statements and nice rhetoric from here and there. Action must be immediate and a call for ceasefire must be a humanitarian call for all. Dr. Irkat, I'm, I'm so glad you you, you gave the, the history in such in, 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 in a very few minutes, but my and, only... Hold on, I'm sorry, I forgot, I forgot to mention, <laughs> besides the 75 years of <laughs> occupation, yes, the 16 years of uh, total deadly blockade that Gaza had been suffering. 2.2 million civilian uh, Palestinians have been deprived from the basic human needs. Israel tried to mislead the audiences by saying that they withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Let me correct the facts here. And um, uh, as an academic, uh, 101 is a credibility and fact check for me. In 2005, yes, Israel dismantled the settlements in Gaza. They withdrew their settlers from Gaza. But one important fact that needs to be communicated with the world that ever since they withdrew their settlers from Gaza, they had maintained every detail of control yes. over Gaza, whether from sea, land, or, uh, or space, or air. And they have uh, uh, succeeded 
to a certain level in, in uh, justifying um, their, their wars against the humanity and their uh, war crimes against the civilians in Gaza under the pretext of fighting Hamas. They well, the you see, that's the point. That's the point I wanted to raise, that sure. they keep going back to Hamas. But Hamas came into establish this. Hamas came around 1987. They became yes. a, a militia group, supposedly being fun, financed from elsewhere in 91. So so who was responsible before Hamas was established? Between 1948 and 87, who was responsible Listen, then? West Bank, there much. is no Hamas in West Bank. So why is the West Bank suffering? So it's all these questions that 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 need to be raised in a, in a in a, in a in a manner that that people listen how does one do that you know experts in conflict resolution and peace studies know very well that in order to resolve or be able to deal with any dispute or conflict you really need to tackle the root causes yes any sane and any conscious person knows exactly that to deal with the root causes of what we are witnessing is basically to look into and address the Israeli military occupation that has been going for so long. To deal with the root causes means basically to start by ending the Israeli military occupation by identifying and drawing the borders of the state of Israel that has been long time recognized. If they don't want to recognize the Palestinian state, so let them start by drawing the border of the state of Israel. Going back to the Hamas point, yes, Hamas was established in, 19, in 1987. The Israeli occupation existed way before. The Palestinian suffering and endurances uh, existed for so long. It's about time people see the Palestinians as equally human beings. Yes. This is when once we reach that realization of uh, civilization of the human rights of the new generation viewing any person any human being as just equally human being no matter what our religion or color or ideology is then maybe we can realize that everybody should be calling for ceasefire in face of the injustices that the civilians are facing in Gaza it is not okay that we are living in 2023 and Israel is misleading the whole world by saying it is waging a war against Hamas and let me remind your audiences Hamas is an ideology they cannot claim that they are eradicating Hamas by shelling, bombing, and massacring the civilians of Gaza. They are basically targeting the residential homes, the mosques, and the churches, and the hospitals, violating every basic international humanitarian law, where unfortunately they are still enjoying impunity. What we are calling for, and as um, Karim Khan, the British citizen, the prosecutor of the ICC, was begging Netanyahu a couple of days ago, to let the investigation teams, if we are claiming to be uh, civilized, if we are claiming to be uh, educated or humanitarian, to say the least, then let's resort to um, international tools, let's resort to legal tools, diplomatic tools, and peaceful tools, to say the least. Why don't we let in the investigation teams of the ICC and have them run the investigation and hold whoever is uh, responsible for the crime accountable? You know, there was a there was a radio commentator here on on a, on another mainstream uh, radio. He asked a question, or he was asked a question: Had Hamas been hiding in Israel, would Israel's response would have been the same? And they said, of course not. Which, by default, to me, means what they're doing is wrong. Because, as you so rightly say, that they keep using um, Hamas as an excuse. To, to drive Palestinians out? Listen, I live in Ramallah. I live in the West Bank for the past four weeks. Today we had, this morning alone, 10 martyrs in the West Bank. In four weeks, we have had more than 140 people, souls perish. Uh, more than 2,000 people were detained. 
in addition to the 5,200 Palestinians from the West Bank who are behind Israeli jails. On a daily basis, we have raids, incursions, settler terrorism that is taking place in every Palestinian village and city of the West Bank. The West Bank is totally suffocated. You know, we are shattered by settlements and settlers who are posing a really serious threat against any civilian. Israel will continue to make up justifications and pretexts to use Hamas as a fake lead in, uh, to cover their crimes against the Palestinians. Yes. Every Palestinian is target, whether you are in Gaza, in the West Bank, or East Jerusalem. The Israeli military occupation controls every aspect and every detail of our life. It's time for humanity to act with wisdom and to deal with the root cause of what we are witnessing. And the first step is ending the Israeli military occupation and identifying the border of the state of Israel. The fact that Netanyahu went last month to the United Nations in New York and held that map from the river to the sea with the total silence of the international community is the green light that he took, the impunity that he took for more and more crimes that he is perpetrating against our people. Well, that leads me to my next question. Where's the Arab League of Nations? Where's the Muslim countries? Their silence... They, they, they should be accountable, no, for for the death of so many Palestinians. Because had they been collectively acting as a voice, they they would have been. This wouldn't have happened. Or am I being naive here? Listen, from a diplomatic perspective, I tell you uh, very openly that diplomacy had failed humanity in Gaza. International law and international humanitarian organizations, multilateralism had failed humanity and civilians in Gaza. I really, as a professor of diplomacy, I don't like to be selective about the role of Arab states or regional states or Islamic states or Christian churches. I am talking about the collective and individual responsibility of every individual member state of the international community. Every state in the international community, whether the 194 countries joining the United Nations, have a singular and collective responsibility towards peace and security, towards the protection of civilians. And they don't only have the responsibility of calling upon Israel as the occupying power of providing that right, but also to ensure it. So once they realize and once they see that Israel is waging war crimes against the Palestinian civilians, they have to hold Israel accountable and they have to take action in protection of civilians. But the problem, Dr. Arakat, is the veto. Everybody in the in, in United Nations knows that what's happening, but as long as the powers, veto powers are there, there isn't, I mean, you're a professor, you're an expert in this. I'm sure you will, you will also realize that unless the likes of the Americas and, and, and the Britons and the France... As long as they have the power to veto, irrespective of the the the, the injustices that are happening, they, you know, it's not I, going I to, to stop. Yes, yes. As a professor of diplomacy, I, I was even criticized by my own students who were questioning what theories am I teaching them and how practical is it when we uh, apply theories into practice. Yes, uh, when it comes to um, the international law diplomacy, had we. Uh, been living uh, in a world that prevails um, international law values and ethics and principles uh, above interest, then the case would have been different. Unfortunately, we live in a very new liberal pragmatic world where unfortunately the interest for states and for individuals prevail over universal values or our uh, beliefs and universal uh, human rights. This is the dilemma. And in academia and in diplomacy, 
there are big question marks that are questioning the credibility and the qualifications of diplomacy and of the international humanitarian organizations. There are many academic calls that are calling for the reform of the United Nations and the voting system and the permanent versus non-member states um, uh, rights. So yes, all those uh, questions are, are, are very just and very um, solid uh, and valid. Yes, we are living in a very pragmatic world and that we are facing the atrocities being perpetrated for day 28 against the Palestinian civilians. And unfortunately, the war crimes today are documented on the screens. This is the saddest reality that we are witnessing. That's why I am uh, using your platform to call upon humanity and your audiences to call for immediate ceasefire just in the name of humanity, in the name of the one million children who are residents of Gaza, in the name of the three, the, the women, the mothers who are de- deprived and who are enduring uh, injustices of losing the beloved ones, of witnessing their babies being, uh, you know, targeted and shelled in front of their eyes, losing their homes with no shelter, no place, no safe place to live. You know, Gaza was already a very, and, and the people who have been there know exactly that it has been an inhumane place of living, totally besieged from the basic human needs. Gaza didn't even enjoy the 2G services of Internet, and your audiences know very well what it means for any citizen in 2023 of having a smart device or enjoying a free and immediate connectivity with the world. The Gazans were deprived from the 2G services because of an Israeli decision that decided that they don't deserve and they're not worthy of what the world is enjoying, let alone the 4 or 5G services. Uh, in addition, of course, to the water scarcity, the pollution, the fact that uh, also they control the electricity. Now, medications, fuel, supplements, uh, water, everything, the whole world is begging Netanyahu today to allow humanitarian uh, assistance. The, the fact that the world and Mr. Blinken and Mr. Sonak are happy and praising um, uh, Israel for allowing 70 or 30 trucks a day is totally inhumane and uncivilized, to say the least. In the basic normal days before um, October 7, on daily basis, um, Gaza used to receive at least 500 trucks of humanitarian aid and supplies. So the fact that we are expecting 30 to 70 trucks to be enough for 2.2 million civilians under fire today is totally insane. Humanity must prevail, and the 2 million civilians in Gaza need everyone's voice in calling for immediate ceasefire, the insanity and the uncivilization and illegality of the Israeli war crimes should not continue in 2023. Dr. Dalal Irikat, may Allah keep you safe. May Allah, may Allah keep everybody safe um, within, within uh, you know, within the areas that we are talking about in Gaza. Inshallah, and I might, can I end with one word? Of course you can. That um, as a Palestinian, I need to remind the whole world uh, that our problem is not with the Jewish people. This is not with the Jewish people. This is with the organized state terror, the Israeli state terror. Our problem with the Israeli military occupation. We don't have a problem with the Jewish people. Stop labeling people by religion and let us see humanity as equal, no matter what ideology or religion we belong to. The best way to finish this uh, conversation, Dr. Talal Irikad, may Allah keep you safe. Have a fantastic evening. May peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Thank you. What more can one say? I mean, she's 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 there. She's in Ramallah. She said, um, "Not much really to argue against what um, what."
what Dr. Erika said, except I know she 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 highlighted the fact, um, you know, from an academic point of view. But I wanted to, um, and and she didn't want to go down the route of 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 uh, talking the responsibilities of. Um, um, you know, Western nations to the Arab nations, but there is a responsibility on Muslim and Arab nations, which was also highlighted by His Holiness, the mm. fifth Caliph of the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, when he said, yes, it, it, you know, as Muslim countries, the reason it's important is because it's their faith. Yeah. The other countries, we can't tell them because we don't know what faith they follow or whatever the, the, the covenants of their faith is. Mm whether they follow it or not. But as Muslims, we know what the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has taught us. And we need to follow that. And I, I think what uh, what she mentioned, uh, Dr. Talal, at the end, look, for, and, and you're, you're right, but it doesn't boil down to faith, does it? It doesn't. And for a Muslim, on top of that, it, faith doesn't matter. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, you mentioned his name. He he stood up for everyone. He did. But m- my point is that they themselves, of bef- course. before looking yes. at somebody else, yes. they need to look at themselves yeah. and to say, look, if we were to, we can have geopolitical issues, yeah. understandable. We can yeah. have differences. But this isn't geopolitical. This is a humanity issue. Yeah. And on humanity, if all the nations will get together and have one voice, then that voice would matter in places like the United Nations. Absolutely. The West would think twice about committing injustices and supporting injustices around the world yeah. and to and to close their eyes when they see injustices happening to the poor people of, of Palestinian. Let's go and talk to our final guest of the afternoon. We have got with us uh, Tahira Amini. Uh, Tahira Amini is um, a third year student majoring in philosophy, politics and economics at King's College London. She's affiliated with the Green Party and has run for election as a paper candidate. She has been involved in political grassroots campaigning on living wage, climate justice and mental health. She has also worked for three years um, at The Voice of Islam, uh, where she has led the breakfast show um, production, um, uh, one of the production teams uh, on uh, the Tuesday production teams um, on The Breakfast Show. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu Peace be on you. Uh, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show, Dahira. Really, really happy to be um, asked to come on and talk about uh, a topic that is really, really important to be looking at. Now, tell us, you know, we are talking about leadership and clearly, as we've demonstrated, there is no true leadership um, that uh, from a political perspective on the international stage. What are the qualities one should be looking at um, in a leader? I think, I mean, firstly, the only leader that I see who is leading um, people with um, a lot of the good morals and qualities that one should have is our caliph, Mr. Masur Ahmed, may God strength in his hands. Um, you know, I think the main quality that a leader should have is the truth, uh, the need uh, to be maintaining truth uh, no matter what one comes across. I understand that um, sometimes in politics, um, leaders tend to twist the truth and uh, cover their tracks, saying other things which end up turning out to be others. Um, but truth is the most important. And alongside that also comes you know, empathy, fairness, um, and transparency is also really important because if people trust their leader and know that what they want from the leader is what they will get and what the leader promises to them, um, if they can't, if the leader can't deliver that, the leader is honest about it and is transparent about it so that people do trust their leader, 
Um, but yeah, as I said, I don't see many examples of that on the international stage. And how can leaders support um, truth and justice whilst appealing to a diverse populace in today's politics? Because, you know, if one was to look at our political arena, you're a political student, I'm sure you will agree that it's not, it, there, is a, there is a missing, a moral compass is missing from today's politics. So how does one, um, uh, you know, appeal to, to the populace? I think appealing to a diverse, diverse populace is very, very difficult in the like nowadays just because people's views are so different um and wanting to represent every single view um it's not possible because you can't for example support one view like completely opposite between side of something another and as soon as a leader says something uh, for example you might have heard you know Keir Starmer um what he was saying previously about um supporting um Israel or you know whatever leader says something um they will get picked up by others uh, to say, actually, well, this is the case. And as new, as you can imagine, you know, the news cycle changes and things develop over time. Representing everyone in the um, country can be tough. However, if a leader has certain morals and certain goals that they have spoken about that they will deliver, um, that is something that a leader can do. However, you know, we're currently going through a time where, you know, we're post-truth, you know, populism, uh, where... You know, our leaders are increasingly, you know, demagogues who are telling us what we want to hear and um, sort of appealing to certain views who they know that they can rely their votes on. Um, of course, democracy is important. That I'm not saying democracy isn't important. Um, I think it's just uh, certain uh, parts of, you know, today's politics demonstrate that actually it's not really possible for our leaders to be, you know, representing everyone, um, every every view, though they can be representing a community. Um, and as I said before, um, only our caliph is really able to represent our community and everyone who joins our community and also others as well uh, with what he does and what he says. Um, yeah. And finally, do you think that the demonstrations that are happening to fight for justice for the Palestinians will have will will have an effect on the leadership um, of this country or across the world? I mean, I don't think I'm not uh, too pleased to answer that question. Um, but I would say that it is quite important for people to be, um, you know, holding their leaders to account, um, either using grassroots activism um, or, you know, using legal channels or however they want to, because it is not uh, good enough for people to just use petitions and, um, you know, just sit aside and say, you know, there's nothing that we can do. Everyone should be understanding that it's everyone's responsibility to be getting involved with politics, to be getting involved with what their role is um, as a citizen, that voting isn't enough to just come out and turn every five years, but you should actually um, know what's happening on the news, have an understanding and actually raise your voice and talk about what you are hearing about other than just, I don't know, signing a petition and thinking that's good enough. Uh, but at the same time, you should, you know, the way you want to act, be um, an activist should be following your own morals. Um, so whether that's protesting, that's something that you would like to do, that's something that you should do. But um, at the same time, you should always bear in mind that strategic um, campaigning has it tends to be more sustainable rather than just, um, you know, alienating certain groups in society. Wonderful. Tahira Amini, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Draft Time Show. Wish you a fantastic evening and a weekend ahead. May peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum. According to Islamic teachings, a leader is far more than a figurehead. Um, a leader is a caretaker of the community's welfare, responsible for both immediate and long-term consequences of their decision. A leader is expected to be a model um, in ethical 
uh, conduct in demonstrating fairness, consultative decisions making and even humility. I think the audio clip I played at the beginning mm. clearly demonstrate that <clears throat> when uh, we were listening to a description of the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, the, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah and the leader um, and the head of the Amdiya Muslim community. With that, we're going to go to some messages and some break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about another topic, which is what, Brother Raza? Why Islam? And uh, we started this uh, series basically a couple of weeks ago and uh, going through the pillars or the foundations of faith. Today, we're going to speak about the belief in angels and holy books. So do stay tuned. Go grab yourself a cup of coffee, um, uh, you know, late afternoon or evening coffee. Um, stay, stay tuned. Listen to our messages and come back and listen to why Islam is important and uh, and why angels and the holy books are so relevant and spoken about. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Welcome back to Friday Drive Time Show with myself, Kayum and Brother Razar. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be, Peace Peace be, be on you. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very good. Friday afternoon. Thanks God. Thanks to God. All praise belongs Belong. to Allah. No doubt. Why Islam? Belief in angels and holy books. So as I mentioned before the break, this is something that we started a couple of weeks ago. We wanted to go through the six articles of faith. Why Islam is that series called? And uh, well, why Islam? Why not? We spoke about the belief in God, the belief in his prophets. Um, and in today's show, we're going to speak about the belief in angels and the holy books and what Islam says about these two fundamental pillars of faith, not Islam, but there are six articles of faith that we have. So this studio is going to turn into a classroom. Yes, <laughs> student Kayum. I have my hand up. Yes. We we are voice of Islam, but you know, we're we're talking to the listener out there who who might not be a Muslim. Sure. And the the concept of angels. Yes. You know in in school they teach you um, you know that uh, God created angels and mm. told Satan mm. or mm. Iblis or whatever you want to call him yeah. that he was made of fire and he disobeyed. Angels are, are given this description. Yes, big wings. Big wings. Yes, yes. Uh, and of course, recently I heard that oh, the devil mm. or Lucifer is also an angel. Yeah, he's fallen a, angel. He's a fallen angel. Mm. What's the what's what's the correct definition that a Muslim believes in what an angel is? Okay, uh, that's a that's a very good question and also a very lengthy answer. But as f for now, what I can tell you is we we're going to go through this. Of course, mm -hmm. the concept that. Islam presents and, and it's not just with angels it's pretty much with everything for example you have the concept or the belief in the hereafter mm. you have the concept of so many other things in Islam that when you read the Holy Quran let's take paradise mm. let's take hell hell and paradise so these these two major um, aspects in, in and destinations destinations well the final destinations yeah. depending on how you behaved yourself here mm -hmm. 
When you read the Holy Quran, it talks about gardens, it talks about rivers, it talks about milk and honey, it talks about uh, beautiful um, landscapes and whatnot. And then on the other side, when you look at the concept of hell, you talk about fire, you talk about punishment, you talk about so many descriptive things that talk about, in one way, form or shape, about punishment. Hmm. Now, how do you imagine heaven and hell? You think about the time when the Holy Quran was revealed, all right? So this was, again, 14 centuries ago. We're talking about a place in the middle of the desert. We're talking about people who didn't know anything about science, who, you know, all the progress that we've made in the world today was unknown. Now, here is the creator, the creator of pretty, of not pretty much, of everything in the world as well as the universe that we see. How do you communicate with someone who doesn't know anything. If I was to, for example, I've been to, let, let's say I've been, I've been to Ghana, I've been to Turkey. You haven't been to Turkey or you haven't been to Ghana. I'm, pr- I'm sure you've, you've gone to both. But if I'm speaking to someone who hasn't been to a certain place and I'm describing that place and I say to him, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. It sounds like this. It smells like this. I'm not going to say it sounds uh, like uh, the streetcar. That mm. person hasn't seen that streetcar. I'm not going to tell them it's, it smells like the bakery of such and such. That person doesn't know about the bakery that is placed. In, of course, in, in, they're not aware so of it. So I yeah. will give them examples that that person can relate to. To, to explain to that person, look, this is what it kind of looks like. The same happened in this case when it comes to angels, when it comes to paradise, when it comes to hell. God Almighty to make sure that we as humans with our limited, limited knowledge and intellect can understand what these concepts are about, have an idea what awaits us when we leave this this planet and, and then this life, gave us a description that we can relate to, a description that we're familiar with. When I ask someone, what is beauty for you? When I ask someone, what is pain or punishment or misery for you? They will have a certain idea, they will have a certain concept, they will have a certain picture in their mind. And I will explain them according to that knowledge that they already have. So when we speak about beauty, when we speak about peace, we think about when we went hiking, for example. We stood on the mountain tops and we saw that tranquility. We saw the quiet nature, the majest, uh, the, the majesty of of the mountains. We saw a, a, a small river and and the sound that that river made, and that is something that the Holy Quran, that is something that God Almighty has used. So when it comes to the concept of angels, yes, we have made this mistake. We have made, not just with the concept of angels, but again, with with many other things, that we have taken things literally. We understand that they're in scripture, not just the Islamic scripture, but also in every religious scripture. God Almighty has used metaphors. God Almighty has used words and ways that are easy to understand for man. So when it comes to angels, when it talks about uh, angels having wings, it's not literal wings. So the pictures that we see, 
the movies that have been made and and so many literature and whatnot is out there that talks about angels being these majestic figures who have wings that span so wide and they're white and and well what makes them so great if you have wings there's nothing great like a bird has wings uh an eagle has wings the span width of i don't know how how many meters so that is not what what is meant here it's a metaphorical explanation that god almighty has used yes so when it comes to angels we don't understand them to be physical beings like ones that you can touch uh the ones that yes again we will get into the details of this but it's, it talks about the qualities the attributes the, the you know the creation of god almighty it's a separate creation who are busy in the service of god almighty and who don't disagree who don't disobey the commandments of god then you have the the question of what's the need of angels right so we'll get to this in in just a little bit as well what is the need of angels why do we have to have angels and why does god why did god create angels and i will also get to the part of where you asked that uh satan or or lucifer or whatever you want to call um is is a is a personification of evil but that's how they how do, that's how, 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 it's how do we, portrayed how do we it? it's a fallen angel yeah. well we we kind of disagree <coughs> with that we don't have the same interpretation but before we do that let's let's go back to the verses of the holy quran and so in chapter 2 verse 286 it says that this messenger of ours believes in that which has been revealed to him from his lord and so do the believers all of them believe in allah and his angels and his books and his messengers saying we make no distinction between any of his messengers So the six articles of faith that are mentioned in the beginning in Islam represent those these core beliefs that every Muslim is expected to uphold. So this is not something that you will find a, a one group of Muslims believing in one side of the world but on the other side of the world they will believe in let's say four or five. No. This is across the board. For a Muslim to call him or herself a Muslim, you have to believe in all of these books, uh, in all of these angels, in all of these messengers, in all of these six articles of faith. So they are foundational to the religion of Islam. They are central to a Muslim's understanding of their relationship with God and of course their role in the world. So as I said, these two that we speak about that we're going to speak or we're speaking about today are about the holy books as well as the angels. So one narration of the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him is that uh, one of his companions says that Abu Hurairah may Allah be pleased with him. He said that you shall not enter paradise so long as you do not affirm uh, belief in all those things which are the articles of faith and you will not believe as long as you do not love one another. You mentioned the article of faith. Um let's go and listen to uh, an audio of the fourth caliph of the promised messiah Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Um with regards to the um the second article of faith belief in angels now hazrat nasim al-salam has mentioned the role of angels as not number one guardian of things laws of nature and controller of things and organizer of things and responsible for all the direction which is given to the law of universe is not running by itself automatically for every law there is a controlling angel which has a consciousness and which puts 
that law into operation. And under that angel, unknown number of angels, hosts of angels are working in every direction to continue, to give continuation to that law. And this is the general system that, that we find in existence in the, in the world which is unknown to us materially. But all that we see is ultimately governed by those unknown, unseen laws. And there we had the fourth caliph of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Tahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Describing um, mm. um, the, the role of angels yeah. um, in the context of what we are talking about this afternoon. So these are celestial beings, as His Holiness has explained. And you know, if I want to go further, and in the words of the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, peace be upon him himself, he offers a, a, you know, a very comprehensive answer to this. And he says, and, and this is a written in one of his books, um, he says that angels are holy like the limbs of the divine. All the designs of God Almighty are first reflected in their transparent mirrors. Through their mediation, the designs of God Almighty are implemented and spread throughout the whole of creation. And then moving on, uh, if you want to elaborate on this a little bit more, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he wrote a short essay labeled The Beliefs of the Ahmadiyya, uh, Ahmadiyya Community. And he says that we believe that the angels are the creation of Allah the Exalted and are distinct from human beings. They are neither imagined nor do they emerge from superstition, but are instead the last designated link in the chain of Allah's material provisions. In accordance with the commandments of God, the angels initiate cause in his creation and after it has passed through various stages, we're able to observe its effects with our own eyes. So these are, as you know, as only as mentioned, super, um, celestial beings of spiritual nature um, who have their own entity as persons. And the major role they play is, you know, the transmission of messages from God to human beings. The most famous example that we find is of the Archangel Gabriel, who appeared to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who appeared to a majority of the messengers, who is responsible for bringing the law, for bringing the, the word of God to the messengers. And in, in Islam, Ahmadiyya, and Islam... Uh, as as a whole, it's angels are supernatural beings, which are created by Allah Almighty. And as it was being explained mm. by the fourth caliph um, in the clip, that they carry out specific tasks in the universe. Yeah, they are they're nothing like humans. Mm. They don't have free will. They don't possess it. That's not been granted them. So they're not subject to, you know, the, the notion of sin or disobedience. They obey God Almighty. Period. Yeah full stop. And they're entirely obedient to the commands um, of God Almighty and exist solely to carry out the will of God. Exactly. And here is, again, this is a small segue. Here is the the answer to the question that you asked before. Mm -hmm. it, it's a very widely asked question about Satan. Yeah. Um, even amongst Muslims, there is a misconception about was he an angel? He was... Uh, a fallen angel. So, you know, they say that God told him to bow to said, to, no. you, to Adam, and and, yeah, and, yeah. and he said no, and he said, well, I'm more powerful. And you know, the story that exactly. you hear it again and again and again, yeah. you think, what in God's name is going on? Exactly. So when you think about what you just mentioned, yeah. that these are beings who cannot, it's just not in their nature. Exactly. They cannot go against the will of God. They cannot go against the commandment of God Almighty. So having said that, in a nutshell, again, we can talk about this for an hour, mm. but in a nutshell, if you keep this explanation in mind, 
What's the logical consequence? Was he an angel? We cannot call him an angel. No, right. Can't. So it's again, it's an entity. It's 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 because it would go against the will of God. There we go. <laughs> right. So if if they don't have the faculty of disobedience, yeah. period, yeah. in their nature, that's right. Then how can someone all of a sudden say, no, I'm not going to do that? Yeah. Right. So these are two different. And then again, if you go in, into this a little bit more deeper, you have Iblis, the concept of Iblis yes. and Shaitan or Satan. Yeah. Um, again, we don't want to go into this right now at this point. But these are two. Uh, how would you say two two qualities of the same evil? Yep. Well, it's two that, narratives. Very, isn't two, it? Yeah. Two they are two narratives. Yeah. Hey. It's very simply put. Yeah. So. Um, Again, just to make things very clear, these these beings are not physical, so they do not have a, a human shape or a, a form of of, of uh, some kind. Uh, the fourth caliph, Hazrat uh, Mizatahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, he has explained this in a little bit more detail in one of his books, and he says that matter must have shape and a well-defined boundary, but spirit, which these mm-hmm. angels are lies beyond the five dimension of man's uh, dimensions of man's understanding you see again bringing it back to the world we live in today yeah it's important to clarify the word spirit hmm. not ghost not ghost yes no because the, again we're at that time of year yeah <laughs> where we think it's such a relevant word yeah but it would be wrong to 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 think in Islam the concept of ghost is is it does it's not exist does it N- not the way that we not the understand way, it today. exactly yeah yeah absolutely so right. a spirit is very different yes so a spirit again you you can call them spirit because yep. if we read um, the Bible yep. right you have the 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 Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and we our understanding is these this is talking about angels yeah. so for example Matthew three sixteen, you find it and as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up uh, out of the water and that moment heaven opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him so in, in different scriptures and different um, verses and, and narrations of, of different religions you find that sometimes these angels also disappeared in, in the shape of birds hmm. right so I'm thinking about the example of oh, correct me if I'm wrong here was it Moses or was it Abraham one of the that placed birds on 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 never mind that's that's something else I take that back that, I'm, I'm confusing things here <laughs> I do apologize <laughs> um, let me take it back <laughs> <laughs> so um now but that that uh, quote was from Matthew 316 Matthew 316 exactly so these are supernatural beings and who carry out certain tasks. I am thinking about, so just to explain, you have incidences, you have narrations where it talks about people seeing angels, right? Mm. So there's one narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where again, we're talking about angel Gabriel. He came to the Holy Prophet and, and the companions, they were around him at that time and they saw a man coming from, from the distance. And he was wearing white clothes, not a not a drop of dirt, not a single um, iota of anything dirty on his clothes. This is in the middle of the desert. And he came, walked through the companions, sat in front of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and started to ask him questions. 
yes. and the companions saw and, this. And, and they saw this. They yeah. saw this. I mean, they they were witnessing and they saw this man coming from the distance and like, Whoa, how how is this man so clean with his white cloth? So he's asking him questions. What is belief? What is faith? What is Islam? <clears throat> what is this? What is that? And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he was answering him, and uh, he said, yes, well, correct, you gave the right answers, and he left. And then after he left, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he told the companions that this was Angel Gabriel. So how do you understand that? This was someone they saw in a physical shape, hmm. who came, they saw him walk, they saw him sit there, but again, what I said before, what His Holiness said before, you cannot put these these beings into a shape hmm. because we are limited in our existence. We're limited with, 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 with the tangible things around us. They are not. Here come the concept of visions. Here come the concept of revelation. I was going to say that. So that was a vision. Right? That was a vision. Hmm. So there's different types of visions as well. Everything that you find within the religion of Islam, everything that you find uh, in the narrations in the Holy Quran, it has to appeal to your rationale. It yeah. has to appeal to your logic. It's got to make sense. There's nothing that we're going to say or we believe in which is supernatural, yeah. which is out of the equation, which is you know mm. cannot be explained by the laws of nature and by the laws of physics. So visions are of different types. Sometimes it's only the person who are who's witnessing that moment or, or that incident. Sometimes because the vision was so strong, we're talking about the angel per se, the people around the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, were able to witness that as well. Right? So keep this in mind. Um and 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 the main point here is that these are basically extended arms. Hmm of the laws of nature that God has put in place that you are responsible for this, you are responsible for this, you are responsible for this. So wind, Not rain. that God has the need for it. No. That's besides the point. God has no need for that. But to have a system in place, they are controlling certain aspects of nature, of universe, of life, of spirituality, of faith, you name it. So the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, he wrote, and he said, some of them, from what you're just saying, mm. have special faculties which, which govern the phenomenon of motion of winds, yeah. and some cause rain to fall. Yeah. Similarly, there are others who are uh, deputed to cause some other cosmic influences to descend upon Earth. Yeah. And he said, he went on to say, according to the Holy Quran, the entire material universe as well as the entire religious universe, is governed by angels. Yeah. Angels are responsible for controlling and maintaining the laws of nature, exactly what you just said. They control the, they control the laws, sorry, and maintain the laws of nature. Viruses and bacteria are governed, organized and maintained by specific angels who work in harmony with each other to maintain a perfect balance. So when I said about um, seeing that person, uh, seeing that uh, person, the, the narration that I've mentioned, the, His uh, Holiness, the fourth, cal the, the second caliph, sorry, uh, of the Promised Messiah on whom be peace, Hazrat Mizab Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, he explained um, certain characteristics of angels, and one of them, when he speaks about seeing angels or if you're able to see them or not, um, he says that, uh, and quoting the chapter, uh, verse 10 from chapter 6, 
He says that man cannot behold angels in their original forms with his physical eyes. If he does see them with his eyes, he will see them manifested in a new form, meaning that physical eyes will not suffice to see them in their original form, but rather one needs spiritual eyes to do so. So in that case, this, this vision. Chapter, vision, yeah. So that, that verse says, and if we had appointed as messengers an angel, we would have made him appear as a man. And thus, we would have made confused to them what they are themselves confusing. So again, these are 14 characteristics that His Holiness had outlined. They have different ranks. They Again, one, one misconception that we find, and the Holy Quran has elaborated on this, they don't have a gender. So we don't, when, when, when it talks about a man coming to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we it's not the man and woman that we understand in, in today's day and age. Um, and God Almighty speaks about this as well, that certain religions or certain people ascribe a gender to angels or, and say that God has taken for himself uh, females or God has taken for himself males. It, 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 that's not the case. So in chapter 37, verse 151, it says, Did we create the angels females while they were witnesses? Nobody was there to witness that. Mm. So they are neither male nor female. God did not declare that angels are actually males. Rather, he stated that these people claim that angels are females. And what do they know what, what angels are? Were they present when God Almighty created the angels, as I mentioned in this verse? And to state that angels are male or female is incorrect. Gender is related to physical beings, not spiritual entities. And what do they do? So... One thing that we explained, they control, not control, but they overlook, maintain, maintain yeah. um, the, the doings and, and, the, and, and the things that are happening in the world. But most importantly, it's the worship of God Almighty. So what they are busy doing all the time is worshiping God Almighty, praising God Almighty, not disobeying God Almighty. And whatever they do, well, they can't, can they? they again, so that's we've we've, we've done yeah. done uh, done and dealt with. Whatever they do is completely, completely subject to the will of God and 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 the design that He has created for things. And they cannot make the slightest deviation. Forget about discipline, deviation even from the set course of functions allocated to them, or from the overall plan of things that are that 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 God Almighty has put in place. And then we come to. Revelations. Angels are responsible for delivering messages from Allah to His prophets. Why? Why is that? Why can God Almighty not speak directly? Well, He can. Of course, He can. But I think to put things into perspective, I've probably mentioned this example before as well. Think about the Big Bang. The Holy Quran explains it like you have these scrolls. These scrolls started to unfold billions of years ago. Mm. When, when was the Big Bang? Billions of years ago. Billions of years ago. All right, let, let, we'll, we'll check exactly when it happened. Billions of years ago, the universe started to expand. And it is still expanding up to this day. And we don't know how long it will expand. Again, putting things into perspective. And it is not just expanding. It is expanding at the speed of light, right? Which is very, very, very fast. Just to give you um, some fact, the speed of light is 299 
1,792,458 meters per second, per second meters. And that is still expanding up to this day. And we believe, yes? 13.8 billion. 13.8 billion, yeah. right? Years ago. Yep. At the speed of this 200, uh, was it 99 million mm-hmm. uh, meters per second, almost 300 million meters per second. Who's behind that? God Almighty is. Well, thing is, you see, <clears throat> rational thinking, or you reach the the the, the height of your thought. Hmm. Um, you know, it can only be God. Get it? It can't be. Yeah. It can't be anything else. So we're assuming that we're talking to someone who believes in God this at the what, moment. This is exactly. But then, even if you don't believe in God, yeah, what well, it happened itself. But but even if even it happened itself, where did it come from? Yeah. So there has to be. So go back thirteen point eight billion years. That's it. So so you know <laughs> what, go, what goes before that? that exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's assume that that it yeah. is is God, right? Now, you are you are a speck. You couldn't even be called a speck in the grand scheme of things. You're we're smaller than a sand of corn yep. uh, corn of sand um, and now we want to communicate to that being who's responsible for everything and anything mm-hmm. Prophet Moses wanted to yeah he wanted to see him didn't he, he wanted to see him yeah what happened he fainted yeah he couldn't see the manifestation of God on a, on a mountain even and this was a man who was spiritually one of the top notch prophets yep and he he fainted he couldn't handle it so again for us as as little small tiny beings we call ourselves humans and think we are the best of creation and we're this and we're that it it wasn't it's not possible yes god almighty can speak to us but to see him we we wouldn't we wouldn't survive that not not even like a, like a tiny fragment of God's manifestation. We would not survive that. Um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when God Almighty used to reveal verses of the Holy Quran, there are narrations that talk about how much of a physical strain it had on his body. We're talking about, you know, winter. Winter is around the corner. Talk about cold, cold days. And he would be sweating when God Almighty was revealing things to him. Can I cause a little bit of trouble here? Mm. Ask you. How and, could you I know, say no th- to this? Throw you, throw you in the deep end. So angels have communicated with all prophets. Yeah. And the question that comes to mind is, then obviously we believe that Adam wasn't the first man, but the first prophet of God Almighty. Hmm. There surely must have been angels who were communicating with Prophet Adam. I'm sure. How how is that possible that a prophet of God does not get to benefit from this system of God Almighty that he has put in place? Exactly, especially if the control and the maintenance of all of these provisions that revelation. God has created in law of nature. Revelation. Yes, one even, of even main revelation mass of, is of revelation. revelation. Yeah. Then then it is a given yeah. that, that angels were communicating with all the prophets. But the thing is, look, when we when we talk, I don't think there's any other religion. I don't think there's any other 
prophet that we know so much about when it comes to angels, when it comes to books, when it comes to belief in, in you know, life of uh, in the hereafter, when it comes to prayers and spirituality and, and faith and whatnot, as we have about the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah. But, but that's because the religion of Islam is 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 was co- was a completion of of all things that came before yeah and of all prophets that came before yeah and the true embodiment of the holy quran the word of god almighty was the holy prophet yes who lived it yes and hence why and then there was the system of recording and the memorization and everything whereas beforehand none of these systems was in place exactly but it wasn't just about the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him the holy quran talks about all the prophets that came before him yeah which is why which is which is why it's called the complete exactly. uh, uh, guide of for, for for mankind till the end of time there we go and which is why it is fundamental for us as muslims to believe in them yes without any distinction yes now moving on there's different again many many chapters and many many verses of the holy quran that talk about the function of angels that talk about the the tasks of angels one of them we've mentioned, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. And then similarly, in chapter 17, uh, verse 96, God states that, Say, had there been in the earth angels walking about in peace and quiet, we should have certainly sent down to them from heaven an angel as a messenger. So in the light of these verses and the way of God, which is mentioned in, in these verses, the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, on whom be peace, he has presented you know, a, a very amazing argument that is against uh, the the way of Allah that the earth becomes a dwelling place for angels. Likewise, it's also against the way of God that humans live in the heavens with their physical bodies, that which some, some people believe. I want you to hold that thought. Okay. And I want you to kind of conclude this article of faith in respect of angels. Because I'm looking at the time, and I yeah. want you, I want to kind of go on to the next element, which yes. is the third article: belief in the holy books. Yes, because that's very relevant. So, what would be your concluding thought on the angels? My concluding thought on the angels is that we need to get away from the concept that they are physical beings, yeah. that they have wings mm. that span, whatever the span may be. These are not fairy tales. We believe in angels very, very firmly. As I said, this it's one of the articles of faith. However, they are celestial, spiritual beings which cannot be seen with our physical naked eyes. However, you can have connections with angels and you should try to make connections with angels as the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as Mizab Shiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, has um, spoken about, has written about in, in, in his books and his sermons and his addresses. And that's one way to gain access to God Almighty. Now, moving on to the third article of faith, belief in the holy books. The second caliph of the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud, Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul. He writes, we believe that God Almighty, we meaning Ahmadi Muslims believe that God Almighty reveals his word for the guidance of his people. And ever since the world was created, for which there is no need to impose a limit on the span of its existence, whether it be as long as hundreds or thousands or millions or even billions of years, God has spoken to his chosen ones to stay humankind in the right direction. God speaks now and will continue to do so in the future. 
It is our belief that law-bearing revelation has found its culmination in the revelation of the Holy Quran. We believe that the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the last of the law-bearers and no law-bearing book will be sent after the Holy Quran. Nothing to be out of, to be honest. You can't, can you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah, so keeping this in mind, so that also explains the claim of the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, peace be upon him. That also explains our relationship with the promised Messiah as well as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and what our belief is about the Holy Quran. The last law-bearing book, there will be no new book no revelation in that form from God Almighty ever, period. Social media. Hmm. If one was to look at social media today, over the past couple of weeks, so many, you know, so many new posts and so many new Muslims hmm. who have been very against Islam, very against, um, especially women, um, when, because the narrative of the West is yeah. about the oppression of women, Islam is kind of up there, um, wrongfully so. Yet every time um, women have been given the opportunity to study the Holy Quran, yeah, it it has been a a, a an absolute eye, yeah. revelation eye open, yeah. and eye opener, and and a lot of people have converted, yeah, uh, or reverted or whatever term people like to use, but they've accepted. Islam as their way of life. Mm. So uh, before we continue, let's go and listen to um, uh, uh, um, a young Ahmadi lady who converted um, and uh, and see what she had to say on this particular topic. I think for me, the Holy Quran has always played a significant role in my life, although probably at the beginning I didn't realise it. Um, sort of my first introduction to the Holy Quran or its recitation and it being read out loud was probably when I went to the mosque um, for the first few times that I went when I was quite young, maybe. Um, I think my, the first time I went to the, to the mosque, I was around seven years old. But then by the time I started going more regularly, I think I was roughly around 10 or 11 or 12. And it was through listening to the imam lead the prayers, um, particularly the evening prayers, um, that I might, I might have attended a couple of times a week on the weekends. Um, it was through that that I actually heard sort of the the calming recitation of the Holy Quran and sort of I saw how it impacted others as well. Um, I knew it had a calming influence on me, but I saw how it impacted other people as well and how people would sort of flock to the mosque in the, in the evenings after work, after school, after their sort of busy, busy day. And they would come together and they would, you could see how it would sort of change them um, over time. I saw its impact on other people and I think slowly it began to have an impact on me as well I think in terms of it being that's that's the recitation of it and, and that was me just listening to it being being recited but I think that must have sparked an interest in me trying to pursue learning how to read Arabic so by that point I must have been around 12 I think by the time I started to try and read maybe 11 or 12 um trying to read and understand the letters and, and learning the sounds and trying to read for myself um, and being able to read the Holy Quran for myself. So I think that that was also a, a key significant part of my journey prior to my conversion. Um, I converted to Islam 
at roughly age uh, 13, um, 13 going into 14. And I, w- I had already started learning how to read at that point. Um, and then f- from there on, after my conversion, it was still a journey with me, um, with my Holy Quran. And, you know, it was one of my goals throughout my teenage years that I really wanted to finish my first reading of, of the Holy Quran in Arabic, um, as is traditionally done, um, usually by children. Um, and I was a little bit older than uh, perhaps those children who would already be fluent and already know how to read it. So I, was quite, I think I was quite conscious of that. Um, but it was a journey and it was it was definitely um, something that I found um, a little bit tricky at first. It took, it took me a while, in fact, many years for me to sort of get my head around learning how to read Arabic and um, learning the letters and the different letter forms. But then once I felt like I'd, I'd cracked it, once I felt like I'd, I'd succe- been successful and learned how to read fluently with all the letters joined up, um, it was a huge um, it was a huge moment of, of joy and pride for me because I think after having spent not just so long doing it, but also the ups and downs of the journey of, of trying trying to learn how a new how to read a new language essentially. Um, but knowing that from there on I'd be able to connect with the Holy Quran in a different way than I had um before. That was something that was really special. Um and I think also as I got older, I mean I completed my first reading of the Holy Quran when I was roughly twenty years old. So it did take me roughly around eight years. Um which some would say is is quite a lot longer than average and uh, there were many times where um you know I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it and um I doubted myself and um like with anything that someone might find difficult then there are moments where you feel like you just can't do it anymore but I think for me there was always this feeling of if I get to the end of the first reading I know that this this is going to be the start of something really um beautiful for me so and then from there on I think from around the age of uh, 20 um, that was when I started studying the commentary of the Holy Quran a lot more and um, delving deeper into the sort of the meanings, not just the, you know, how to read the letters, but actually trying to understand its meaning and how to try and apply the meanings of the Holy Quran and its verses and its teachings and its commentary into my daily life. And I think that is something that, um, you know, many Muslims undergo that journey of trying to inculcate the Quranic teachings into their life. And it, that is a lifelong journey of, of ups and downs. Um, but yeah, I would say that it's it's had a profound impact on my life. The Holy Quran, not just in its words and its, and its um, text, um, as we do believe it to be the revealed word of God, um, but also the commentary and trying to get to the deeper message, messaging behind what the teachings are, why they were given, and how to directly apply them. And now with my own children, trying to teach my own children, sort of I'm on the beginning of that journey with them, trying to teach them how to read the letters and back to back to the basics with them. But it's very refreshing because it reminds me of my time um, of learning and how it is a journey and, and we can't rush these things. It's it's very much, you know, you have to go at the pace of um, the, ch- the child when you're teaching them. So for me, yes, it's it does play a huge impact in my life now and even before, um, prior to conversion. You're listening to The Drive Time Show on Friday with myself, Kayum and Brother Raza. Let's go and listen to another audio of, um, of a clip which describes the beauty of the Holy Quran. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Quran is a rare pearl 
its outside is light and its inside is light and its above is light and its below is light and there is light in every word of it it is a spiritual garden whose clustered fruits are within easy reach and through which streams flow every fruit of good fortune is found in it and every torch is lit from it its light has penetrated to my heart and i could not have acquired it by any other means and allah is my witness that if there had been no quran i would have found no delight in life i find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand josephs i incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart it has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured and it has a wonderful effect on my heart myself is lost in its beauty it has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the holy quran which is a surging ocean of the water of life he who drinks from it comes to life indeed he brings others to life You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. And there we had two fantastic clips and audios of why um, the Holy Quran is, is so important and the impact that the Holy Quran has on people. Um you know, how many times have we listened to the story of Caliph Omar when he when, when he wanted to, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Brother Rosa, hmm. that uh, he, he, he was going somewhere. Where was he going with the intention when he was told that his sister and his brother-in-law had converted? To... to kill the holy prophet that's it it was uh, he, he and then somebody stopped him and said before worrying about the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him maybe you need to go and look at your own house hmm. and put your own house in order because your sister and your brother-in-law had converted and he, he and he and in anger he went to his sister's um, house um, and uh, he was he showed his displeasure um, to his sister and, and brother-in-law but his sister started to recite the verses from the Holy Quran. He first heard them, like when he knocked at the door, he heard something was being recited. Okay. Then he went inside, the reluctance, there was yeah. a small altercation. Yeah. And then he agreed to do ablution and then listen, listen. to and read so he can read the, those. And those. he started to cry. Yes. So immediately it, it just went straight into his heart. Yeah. And it had such a profound impact on him that that was the reason why he converted, why he accepted Islam. So a man who was going to take the life of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, by reading, by not reading, by listening yeah. to verses of the Holy Quran, he then made a 180 degree turn and 
accept the message that he went out to destroy. And I also heard, again, growing up in the younger days, you know, centuries ago, um, that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had prayed to God that give me one of the Umrs. Hmm. And that was the second caliph, Umar bin Khattab. Yes. Because there was another Umar. I can't remember who that was, but they were known for the strength. Oh, yes, And their confidence and their command. Hmm. Um, and people feared their their, their presence because they were such confident individuals. Yeah. And then the, I remember being taught that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had prayed to God Almighty. That's at the beginning of Islam. Hmm. That, uh, that that oh Allah, give give one Umar to me. Yeah. And that's when um, uh, the Caliph Umar bin Khattab he he converted to Islam. But I think that's such a beautiful story within itself. It describes the Holy Quran. In 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 a manner, to a person who was full of hate, mm. so much hate that he was going to be looking to murder mm. the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God forbid. And and then he went on to listen to the words of the Holy Quran and and to recite, and it melted the hearts of one of the most Staunch. strongest yeah. people known at that time within the within within Arabia. Yeah. And don't you see like similar things happening today? Yes, yes. Right? So we have so many examples. I, I, you know, you see it on social media. You you hear about it on the news, and you read about it on different blogs and whatnot. That people who made it their mission to find mistakes, to find the 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 evil, God forbid, in the Holy Quran, mm. um, and to 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 lay it bare, it just completely the opposite they they don't see anything and the more they read the more they focus on it the more they accept i i can't remember who was it which organization was it that commissioned yeah i remember that i don't yeah it's it's some kind of international association who commissioned someone to go and actually find fault in the holy quran yeah and it was over a period of years that this person studied yeah and traveled around the world and talked to people experts mm. for and against and concluded that there is no fault in this book absolutely not and if one was to look at it from a a change uh, perspective was it was it git wildus the, the Geert dutch Wilders, politician yes, yes 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 one of his right hand men yeah yeah exactly one of his right hand men that, was yeah. writing a book uh, and who was who hated islam yeah. a prominent Dutch leader, Dutch politician, who hated Islam and wanted to write a book against Islam and started reading the Holy Quran. Ended up converting. And he ended up converting <laughs> too because he said that there, is, there isn't a single thing that he could find. In fact, yeah. that everything that he had been told was wrong. Exactly. And he, and he converted to Islam because he read the Holy Quran, and there's so many, so many examples of of when people get to read it, mm. they they like, oh my God! It's an eye opener. The, the problem that we face in the world today. Look, I th- I don't think it's a secret when when I say or or it's uh, it's not known or it's 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 an uh, out of the ordinary thing to say that there is lack of knowledge. Mm. 
Mm. There's lack of education. And people assuming from what they hear in the news, from what they hear in the media, from what some of these commentators, uh, you know, the nonsense that they talk about certain verses taken out of context from the Holy Quran, that the the, the Holy Quran is, is such an evil book. It talks about killing. It talks about doing this. It talks about that. It's all about punishment. It's all about the wrath of God and whatnot. It's not. There are 114 chapters of the Holy Quran. 113 of them start in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. And over and over again for Muslims, read it in combination with the incidences and the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Because at the end of the day, he was a living embodiment of the Holy Quran. He lived that book in his life, through his life, through his actions. And if you think that this Prophet was, God forbid, like a like a... A warmonger, like some people assume uh, and describe, then you haven't read it properly. You haven't studied his life properly. At every occasion, if we had the chance to forgive, he would forgive. At every occasion to carry out justice, if he could, he did. And that was his nature. That was what he was all about. After 23 years of persecution, 23 years isn't like that's like what half of your life no that's less than half of your life <sighs> anyways and uh, he 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 was persecuted his friends were killed his family was 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 persecuted and killed he lost his loved ones but when he came and he had the chance to take revenge to carry out justice what did he do he forgave mm. and that was based on the teachings of the holy quran so again, bringing it back, I mean, it's a very nice link to the previous topic that we spoke about. When you're watching those videos on social media, I've seen this, you know, yesterday and the day before as well. People here in the West talking about the resilience, the the strength, the the perseverance, the, the, pers- the faith, and is the it, belief of these but that's people the thing, in God. But that's the thing. It's the belief which is which is the reason why they will never, ever. Yeah. Give up. They, they will never give up, and they will never be wiped away yeah. as as the narrative that's being thrown out there. And because of their belief in yeah. God Almighty, because of that child who says, "I am here, I am alive, yeah. and I thank God for the life that I am alive today." There it is. That that's their only. Hasbunallah. You hear this over and over again. That's right. Sufficient is God for us. Sufficient is God for us. If the world has failed us, the world has failed us. We had no expectations whatsoever in the first place, which is, you know, takes us back to so rightly say to the to why we talk of the Muslim and the Arab world, yeah. and why when this Gazan said that I am alive and I thank God for yeah. the fact that even though I am standing in this in this in in this rubble, mm. that I thank God for the life He has given me. But know it and hear it, that you Muslims and you Arab nations mm. who see this injustice happening to us, you are dead. And I am alive. And this um, goes back to what His Holiness Hazim is a Masur Ahmad, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, when he talked uh, a couple of Friday sermons ago, that it is ultimately the responsibility of the Muslim and the Arab nations to make sure they unite with one voice. And if there are any more deaths within the Palestinians, know it that it was your failure not, it was your failure not to unite, which led to the deaths of so many 
innocent people. I want to thank all of our guests for taking time out on coming into our show and and shedding some insight um, into the topic of question. Um, before we go, um, thank you to Brother Raza. Thank you to um, Nadia Shamas, uh, Pravish Huma, uh, and uh, and, Nasser, and Friyal Nasser for today's show. Uh, may God Almighty help and protect the people of Palestine. May God Almighty ease their pain and suffering. May God Almighty bestow his mercy hmm. um, on them. May God Almighty open people's hearts to give and to pray at this time of crisis. May God Almighty help those who are in need wherever they are. And finally, with the words of the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand. He said, may Allah enable the big powers of the world to establish justice on both sides and therefore establish peace. Until we meet again, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.